Welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Micro. As always, I hope you had a great week. And you can always find Let's Talk Micro on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, TuneIn Radio, Good Pods. Wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find Let's Talk Micro. As for our social media, I am on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube as Let's Talk Micro, on X as Let's Talk Micro 1, on LinkedIn as Luis Plaza, and I have an email, which is Let's Talk Micro at Outlook.com. So please go ahead and subscribe to the podcast, download episodes, leave a review, any feedback if the app allows you to do so, and definitely any feedback, any suggestions, you can submit those via social media or via email. As always, thank you for your support. And if you haven't listened to the previous episode, please go ahead and do so. Great episode with Dr. Ryan Relich and Dr. Kenneth Gavina from the Indiana University School of Medicine. And they came to the podcast to talk about an article regarding Francisella and how they had a blood culture and they had an organism that was growing. And then they suspected uh, Francisella and then they sent it to their, you know, to their reference lab, which is their, you know, their, their health department lab. And then it ultimately ended up being a subspecies of Francisella. So in the episode, they talk about biochemicals, morphology. They talked about being prepared, which is very important, you know, and most of these organisms, you know, that are uh, potential bioterror agents, we thankfully, right, we might never see in our careers. And that's a good thing. But sometimes, you know, we're, we're so busy with our cultures and medical lab scientists, you know, we have to get through a huge volume of culture sometimes or most times it seems like it. And then, you know, uh, sometimes, you know, we get an organism and then we have trouble identifying it. We consult with someone, then maybe we consult with a supervisor, manager. And then next thing you know, we have four or five people that get involved and they are potentially exposed to one of these organisms. So being prepared, keeping that knowledge and making sure we review, having some protocols for potential bioterror agents, you know, have our policies in place. It's very important. So overall, it was a great episode, very informative. So please check it out if you haven't done so already. So in today's episode, we are going to talk about viruses. And, you know, it was a great episode. I had two guests, and one of them was Dr. Ryan Relich uh, from the Indiana University of School of Medicine. And the other guest was Dr. Benjamin Pinsky from Stanford University School of Medicine, and he's also the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Clinical Virology from the American Society for Microbiology. So both of them, you know, they're very knowledgeable. They are experts in the field of virology. So they came to the podcast to talk about emerging viruses and viruses of high consequence. And it was a great episode. So it's going to be two parts because, you know, there's so much great information that I split it in two. So part one is this episode, the one that is airing right now, and then part two will air next week. And then in part one, you know, uh, Dr. Pinsky and Dr. Relich, you know, they talk about viruses, you know, uh, going over the basics, you know, uh, DNA viruses, RNA viruses. Uh, they talk about the mode of entry. Uh, they talk about diseases. And then on the second part, they talk about, you know, uh, diagnosing them, laboratory testing and the challenges. So overall, it was a great episode. And Dr. Pinsky, uh, you know, he talks about the Clinical Virology Symposium, which is actually happening from September 9th through the 12th of this year in West Palm Beach, Florida. 
So unfortunately, by the time this airs, it's too close to the symposium. But still, I am posting the link on the show notes and go ahead and check it out. I mean, if you register remotely, you were able to access the content later for a, an amount of time. So, you know, he said that, you know, they have a good lineup. Uh, you know, him and Dr. Relich, you know, they're doing a, a virology jeopardy. So it seems that, you know, it's, it's going to be great information. I'm actually going to be going to it. I will be attending this year. And I'll be, you know, posting about it and I'll do an episode just like I did after Microbe 2023, you know, and I'll be talking about the talks that I like, you know, things that I saw that I enjoyed. So I'll be doing an episode about that. So stay tuned. But my apologies, when part two comes out, it'll be after the symposium. So you'll hear Dr. Pinsky talking about it. So I apologize for that. But I am including the link. So definitely go ahead and check it out. And if you are able to register remotely, go ahead and do so. There is some great content. So let's go ahead and listen to part one of this great episode about viruses with Dr. Relich and Dr. Pinsky. So on today's episode, we are, we're going to be talking about viruses. You know, it's a, something as, as medical laboratory scientists, you know, we do testing. Maybe when we're going through the program, we don't go into them as much detail as we do, you know, bacteria, but definitely, you know, very relevant topic. So with me today, I have two great guests that are going to be talking about emerging viruses and outbreaks of high consequence viruses. So I have Dr. Ryan Relich and Dr. Benjamin Pinsky. Doctors, welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. My pleasure. So I think it'll be good. Let's just go ahead and start with a, with a quick introduction to the audience. You know, if you can tell them a little bit about yourselves and like, what do you do and anything else that you want to add? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my name is Ryan Relich. Um, I am infatuated with microbiology and have been since I was 10 years old. So uh, getting to be a medical microbiologist and getting paid for it is something that, uh, you know, is great. So I guess you could say I don't really work a day in my life. Um, but uh, to that end, uh, yeah, I am a medical microbiologist. I'm the medical director of the Division of Clinical Microbiology for Indiana University Health, based in Indianapolis, Indiana. Um, I am a medical director of a couple other laboratories here as well, director of a fellowship program for PhD folks uh, interested in medical and public health laboratory microbiology. Um, I'm an associate professor of clinical pathology and lab medicine at the School of Medicine, the Indiana University School of Medicine. And um, in addition to all of that, I also have an academic research laboratory um, in which I study emerging viruses. Um, so I focus on risk group two and risk group three viruses that require BSL-2 and BSL-3 containment respectively. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much me in a nutshell. Thanks, Ryan. That was a great introduction. I, uh, I did not come into microbiology or virology so early as, as you did. Um, I thought I would, I, I was very interested in laboratory medicine um, but I really got obsessed with viruses during my uh, clinical microbiology rotation and subsequently during the 2009 H1N1 uh, outbreak um, in which I brought in new testing and really got really got hooked on, on virology and the importance of viral diagnostics. 
Um, I'm uh, currently the uh, medical or the uh, director of the clinical virology laboratory for Stanford Healthcare and Stanford Children's Health. Um, and my academic position is in uh, the departments of pathology and medicine, um, as well as a courtesy appointment in uh, pediatrics. Both medicine and pediatrics are in the divisions of infectious diseases, respectively, for the adult and children's groups. Um, and all of that is in the Stanford uh, School of Medicine, um, and I'm a professor in those positions. I do have a research lab, which is primarily uh, involved in uh, the development and evaluation of novel diagnostics for, uh, vi uh, for infectious diseases, predominantly viruses, but also some hard, hard, other hard-to-culture uh, organisms. So it's really a pleasure to be on here talking about emerging infectious diseases uh, with you and with Ryan. And uh, I think this is going to be a, fu uh, a fun discussion. Definitely a pleasure having you both. And uh, like I was telling, you know, Dr. Relicho, I kind of just years ago, I saw him speak on you know, something and then I saw both of you doing the podcast at the ASM. So definitely, you know, one of the, the for lack of a better word, you know, for the cool things of, of this podcast is, you know, getting to connect and meet. So people doing, you know, great work out there in the field and, you know, has like a little bit of a Hollywood feel for me, you know, like meeting all these people that before maybe you saw their names on a publication or never actually spoke to them. So it's it's a great feeling. And I definitely can identify with what Dr. Roach said about the never working a day. And it's just, you know, I, I love what I do in this new journey. And, you know, as a medical lab scientist, you can work in many areas and I have tried to be objective and I have worked in them. You know, I've done hematology, blood bank, but it's just micro has that that pool that it's just and definitely about two years ago i said this is it i'm you know i'm throwing myself in completely and while those areas are great you know for me it's just it's micro so i'm definitely all in so i should also mention that ryan and i kind of got thrown together to do um clinical virology jeopardy which is a staple of uh the clinical virology symposium um we took over from Alex Valsamakis, who had done it for many years and was really did an amazing job. And so we've been doing it for the last several years, um, of course, with a, with a COVID-2 hiatus. But um, we are reprising that uh, later this, this year in September uh, at the Clinical Virology Symposium. So we enjoy chatting with each other, and hopefully this won't get too out of control. <laughs> Yeah, the banter sometimes gets a little bit carried away. So whenever we derail, just re-rail us and, you know. Just yeah, yeah, exactly. Keep us on. Push us down the tracks. <laughs> I mean, we love we love virology. So, um, you know, hopefully it's uh, this is as entertaining for the listeners as it is for us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. So definitely. Uh, yeah. Looking looking forward to this. Um, so let's go ahead and just. Um, talk about some emerging viruses and you know i think it's always good for the audience like i mentioned at the intro you know sometimes you know when we're when we're studying or going through the program and and things like that maybe we don't touch on them as much you know maybe we stick some classics some very short things you know it's a time thing and you don't have time you're preparing for your boards so definitely uh here we can go a little bit more more detail and hit some points that are very important so let's go ahead and talk about some you know like uh we hear about, you know, DNA viruses versus RNA, you know, how do they, you know, what's the mode of entry, 
you know, reservoirs, how do we treat them, you know, so all those, you know, main points. So let's go ahead and start. Sure. Well, who would you like to talk about this stuff? Ben and I uh, are equally passionate. Maybe we could just start talking at the same time. And <laughs> No, yeah, yeah. Why don't, why don't you go first, Ryan, and then I'll jump in with my favorite viruses and I'm sure we'll have a lot to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, all right, well, let's uh, turn the clock back to basic virology 101. Um, so there are seven different types of genomes among viruses out there comprising um, either DNA or RNA. And the format, if you will, of those genomes differs from virus group to virus group. So for example, uh, if we start with DNA viruses, you have single-stranded DNA genomes, you have double-stranded DNA genomes, and that are, there are others that are called gapped double-stranded DNA a good example of that is uh, the hepatinovirus or uh, the hepatitis B virus. Um, and so um, in addition to that, there's this whole cadre of RNA viruses that comprise the other seven uh, genome types. There's the double-stranded RNA viruses, things like rheoviruses and rotavirus. Um, there are what are referred to as the minus sense single-stranded RNA and the plus sense single-stranded RNA viruses. Um, and there are a number of emerging viruses, if you will, that um, are essentially members of those two broad categories of viruses. And the last uh, genome type is the RNA that employs reverse transcription in order to make a DNA intermediate that is then um, used for other things. And good examples of those would be lentiviruses like HIV. And so many of the emerging viruses, if you will, that we've seen over the past several years that have emerged, the majority of them are RNA viruses. And so uh, folks then ask themselves, well, why RNA viruses? Why not DNA viruses? Well, that answer is a couple of different parts. Number one, DNA viruses do emerge and they do cause significant problems. Uh, case in point, most recently, monkeypox virus um, emerged and it spread throughout immunologically naive populations throughout the world by close contact with uh, infected humans. Um, and th that uh, uh, chain of human-to-human -human transmission started much like all other um, viral infections that we know of these days, it started with some sort of animal host, um, whether it be a reservoir or some intermediate. Um, and then the virus, what's referred to as spilled over. And so there was a spillover event that led to the virus being, um, you know, introduced into the human population. And so um, RNA viruses, though, account for most of the ones that make the headlines these days. And there's a couple of different reasons for that, um, the chief among which I think, uh, and I could be wrong about this, maybe there's other learned people that know much more than me, but one of the things that RNA viruses, a trick that they have up their microscopic sleeves, um, is sort of their breadth of genetic diversity. Um, and so with, for example, SARS-CoV-2, the virus that's associated with COVID-19, um, it and other RNA viruses exist within cells uh, during the manufacturing process or what's called the infectious cycle um, and what's called a quasi-species. And a quasi-species 
Um, you know, it's all SARS-CoV-2, but there are a number of genetic variants that are present within the population of viruses that's produced within a host cell. And so many of those viruses can have mutations that may not affect um, their infectivity or replication. Others can have deleterious mutations that essentially, you know, shoot them dead in the water. And others may have adaptations that lead to something that benefits them. And so perhaps in a very large pool of viral progeny, there's only, you know, maybe 100 or so that are capable of going on to infect cells. And perhaps some of those are particularly well adapted at infecting human cells. So, you know, that genetic diversity that is a consequence um, of their just normal being is really uh, lends itself quite well to to something that would eventually then make it much more fit for emergence in the human population. And so with regard to mode of entry, there's a couple of different ways that these viruses can get into people. Ryan, before you go on to mode of entry, should I, can I just jump in and say the, uh, the diversity, I think, is a really important uh, part of this. And at least some of the mechanistic uh, reasons for this is that the uh, uh, RNA-dependent RNA polymerases that these viruses have make a lot of errors. So uh, they they uh, are not high-fidelity enzymes. Uh, many uh, do not have any sort of proofreading activity or have minimal. Um, I think I'm correct on that, Ryan. You can correct me. Yeah, you are correct. <laughs> um and and so the the virus is replicating and has uh, you know and makes these mistakes and as Ryan said uh, many um, uh, you know some don't do anything some are deleterious but others give them some sort of selective advantage and may make them uh, more pathogenic more easily transmissible and so forth um, so they have this error prone activity as well as uh, if viruses replicate to high levels there's the opportunity to make errors. Uh, and so this, these two things combined uh, then have the there's there's these possibility um, that you can create viruses in a reservoir species that can then, uh, as Ryan said, spill over into human populations if there's the right interactions. Um, and so that's where um, we get concerned about these viruses and also why this sort of uh, uh, genomic monitoring that has become so popular with SARS-CoV-2, but why that's so important for a lot of these emerging viruses. So we can see, you know, what's going on with these viruses. Are they generating, are the mutations that are being generated, do they have the potential uh, to cause problems? Um, so sorry, I, sorry I interrupted. I just want to no. jump in there and... No, 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 that's, that's very important. So and you should go on because then the next step is what you were talking about. Like how do these transmit, how do they get into humans? Um, what are those, what are those risk factors that, that happen? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the mode of entry into human hosts can be one of many possible ways. Um, for example, spillover events that occur, um, you know, consequent to bushmeat gathering or hunting um, is typically exposure to blood uh, and consumption of meat that may contain viruses. Um, you know, vector species such as ticks, mosquitoes, biting flies, and other things um, are really good ways by which viruses can 
travel from one animal to another. Um, and there's, you know, a variety of ways in between that the viruses can also get in, you know, direct inhalation of uh, infectious particles. Um, you know, a good example of a virus that does pretty good at getting into human hosts through breathing them in, in terms of emerging viruses, um, are hantaviruses, orthohantaviruses. So they're shed in the excrement um, of rodents. And um, even though that excrement can dry on a surface and be dried for a while, and in the act of disturbing it and sweeping it up, you create basically a microparticulate aerosol um, that you can breathe in and, you know, it'll land on your mucous membranes and, you know, some of it will get swallowed, others uh, will get taken down into the small air spaces within your lungs, giving the virus then an opportunity um, to bind to uh, susceptible and permissive host cells. And so really acquisition and entry um, are tied together that way. Um, there are, in some instances, multiple potential ways that a virus can spill over into the human population, you know, whether it's directly through the reservoir exposure to a reservoir species or an intermediate host. Um, but regardless of what happens, if the virus has the ability to form a stable interaction with the new host, then you can get um, these chains of transmission from person to person. And along the way, the viruses can adapt. So SARS-CoV-2 is an example of a virus that we used to call a zoonotic virus. But now, um, after you know three-ish years or, or more of sustained human-to-human -human transmission, um, that virus has done a pretty good job at adapting to uh, spread throughout humans. And so we call that a human virus now. Um, but there's many other examples of um, you know, zoonotic viruses that occur in the human population consequent to a spillover. Ebola viruses are an example, Marburg virus, uh, Nipah virus, and a handful of others, uh, just, you know, sort of at the top of my head. Yeah, and certainly you mentioned earlier um, monkeypox virus uh, causing mpox disease uh, also was thought to be a zoonotic uh, uh, due to zoonotic exposures and now clearly um, has occurred through person-to-person -person close contact in certain populations. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, th there's a lot of animals um, that are implicated in, uh, you know, nature to human, if you will, uh, transmission of, of these viruses. And uh, rodents and bats get a lot of press with regard to that because, uh, rodents account for about 40% of the mammalian species diversity, and bats account for another 20% of the mammalian species diversity. Um, you know, of the 1,200 or so species of bats, um, each of those bats may harbor viruses that, um, you know, are only found in those bats. And sometimes they spill over into the human population. Um, and most of the time, it appears that those viruses probably do nothing. Um, you know, there may be a brief infection that gets burned out very quickly. Perhaps the host, you know, the human cells are not susceptible. They're not permissive to infection. And so the virus doesn't get an opportunity to, to replicate and then go from person to person. Every, every once in a while, though, you know, a bad actor will emerge and, um, you know, viruses like rabies virus and Nipah, Hendra, Ebola viruses, Marburg viruses, various beta coronaviruses, um, you know, those viruses then have, uh, unfortunately, the ability to 
um, lead to long chains of human to human transmission as long as you know the circumstances that dictate that human to human spread are maintained. But you know you need to interrupt that chain of transmission then to put an end to that that uh, that that those generations of viral spread. Does that answer your question, or is that effectively tap dance around it, Luis? <laughs> no, yeah, it, yeah, it it does, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Definitely a lot of a lot of a lot of good information. And and I don't mean to um, villainize these animals because they don't care about us per se. You know, they're not deliberately giving us viruses. You know, a lot of these exposures are. Uh, a consequence of our own actions. You know, people are really good at messing up ecosystems and displacing native species, and effectively, uh, by all of that, interrupting these enzootic cycles of viruses in nature. And then, um, you know, one thing that's really dramatic is the human population growth over the past, you know, five, six hundred years. Um, you know, the human population was pretty small, I mean, compared to now. Um, and in the span of five or six hundred years, you know, just billions of people grew up. Um, you know, our, our reproductive potential went through the roof, and now we're, you know, in every corner of the earth, exploiting resources, displacing uh, natural populations of animals, uh, leading to increases in the number of incidents of exposure to these, you know, wild animals and their wild viruses. And the the other thing to point out there is that in many of these Re reservoirs the viral infections are asymptomatic like they the viruses and the host have come to uh, uh an equilibrium such that the viruses are just very effective at uh maintaining their uh genomic material and uh, they don't really do much to the host um and then we step in there and and uh, our immune systems um and the viruses themselves uh, cause a lot of problems Okay, so as you know, you have so you have mentioned, you know, we have gone over viruses, you know, DNA, RNA, you know, how do we acquire them, you know, the reservoir. Um, maybe can you touch a little bit on um, some, you know, like a, definitely a lot of information, but maybe touch on some diseases and, and treatment. Sure. Ben, do you want to talk about diseases and treatment? Um, I, I mean, it's a broad category. Uh, you want to go for it? I can jump in. Yeah, I'll do the hemorrhagic fevers, and you can do the non-hemorrhagic fevers. How about that? Yeah, so um, there's a whole array of viruses out there that are associated with um, this syndrome referred to as hemorrhagic fever. Um, and so not every person that contracts these hemorrhagic fever viruses those develops hemorrhagic fever. It's really the sort of the exceptions to those um, that get the most media attention, especially considering you know, they're high consequence pathogens, but, um, you know, chief among those that cause these severe acute infections that can have high case fatality rates um, are viruses like the filoviruses, Marburg and Ebola viruses. Um, and real quick, a, a word about nomenclature here. Um, so whenever we use the word Ebola viruses, two separate words, that is specific to what's called Zaire Ebola virus, which is a species of the genus Ebola virus. Um, there are three other Ebola viruses, all one word, um, three members, three other members of the genus that include Sudan virus, Typhorus virus, and Bundibujo virus that also cause 
um, a disease, uh, Ebola hemorrhagic fever. Um, and so there's also Marburg virus, which, which is associated with hemorrhagic fever. Um, and there are a number of arena viruses, um, like Lassa virus, Lujo virus, um, the South American hemorrhagic fever viruses like Guanarito, uh, Hunin virus, Machupo, uh, Chapare virus. Um, here in the United States, there's even um, probably more than one, but at least one that I know of that I have in the laboratory. It's called whitewater arroyo virus. Um, that's a mammarina virus that appears to be reservoired by cotton rats, um, which are found throughout the desert southwest. So New Mexico, Arizona, California. Um, and there have been cases of human disease linked to exposure to those animals and subsequent infection with whitewater arroyo virus. Um, there are the hantaviruses, which are associated with hemorrhagic fever and renal syndrome. Typically, what are called the old world hantaviruses, like Hantan virus and Sol virus and Pumala virus, um, and uh, various flavy viruses like yellow fever virus that is associated with hemorrhagic fever. Um, and there are a bunch of others, uh, non hemorrhagic manifestations, including respiratory disease and the central nervous system disease. And Ben, if you want to talk about those for a minute, go for it. Well, it's just uh, you mentioned the. Hantaviruses, and the we were just talking about uh, at with my residents today. Um, Sinombre virus, uh, of which there was about I don't know seven eight years ago, maybe a little longer. Quite a large outbreak in uh, Yosemite uh, National Park, not too far from us here. But certainly, all of those viruses you mentioned are are of concern um, and can cause severe uh, illness if individuals are exposed. Um, one thing that you didn't talk about was, you know, the therapeutics for these viruses, of which um, the options are extraordinarily limited. Um, it's primarily supportive care for folks that are um, the, for folks that are infected and have severe clinical illness. Um, I'm not aware that there are specific antivirals for any of those um, folks. Try a variety of things that may impact viral replication. Um, but typically, um, this is all uh, supportive supportive care. So viral therapeutics are something where um, a lot of work needs to be done to identify um, to identify therapies that are effective at uh, preventing severe clinical manifestations. The main ones, as you know, are, uh, there have been several developed for SARS-CoV-2 that have uh, a modest effects um, and are, uh, I guess, modest effects of preventing infection, but um, can reduce the severity of illness. Um, and those include um, protease inhibitors uh, as uh, uh, nermaltravir, also known as Paxlovid, and uh, remdesivir, which is an RNA-dependent RNA polymerase inhibitor. And for a lot of these emerging viruses, though, we don't have drugs. Um, you know, flu, we have we have uh, neuraminidase inhibitors like Tamiflu or Oseltamivir and some newer uh, RNA-dependent RNA polymerase inhibitors. Um, but for a lot of things, really, the development for antiviral drugs has been primarily focused on chronic infections, of course, first HIV. Um, which has been a huge success, I would argue, um, and more recently hepatitis C, which can now be cured with antiviral 
medications. Um, but a lot of these emerging viruses, as I said, are really, uh, we're limited in our arsenal to treat patients that have become infected. And really the approach is, um, and Ryan can talk more about this, is, um, is to develop vaccines. Um, so should there be a spillover, we can limit its spread. Um, and so that's been the case for filoviruses, for Ebola and Marburg, certainly. Um, and I think that's the approach that's being taken for many of these infections, that if there is spillover, we can really limit its extent by vaccination. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a specific approach that's taken referred to as ring vaccination. Um, for Ebola virus, the Zaire Ebola virus, there's um, you know, a couple of different vaccine platforms that exist. The one that is FDA approved in the United States, which uses a recombinant vesicular stomatitis virus that expresses the Zaire Ebola virus glycoprotein, um, that is what's available, you know, to many places in Africa whenever they need it. So that vaccine gets introduced and they try to identify people that were contacts of specific cases and they vaccinate you know, the contacts, they vaccinate the contacts of the contacts, essentially creating this concentric ring of vaccinated individuals around each case um, in an attempt to sort of stamp out the transmission um, of that virus. And that type of approach, you know, for years has been what uh, uh, folks, biopreparedness folks have thought would be good to handle smallpox in the event that um, smallpox was deliberately introduced as a biological weapon into the human population. Um, they would find individuals and they would ring vaccinate around those folks. And so um, that that type of thing is useful um, and for many reasons uh, for for curbing the transmission of these things, these viruses. And we haven't even talked yet about respiratory viruses and the neurotropic viruses. I mean, there's a whole laundry list of viruses. I only went with hemorrhagic fever because that's the one that everybody knows about, right? Uh, but influenza viruses like avian influenza viruses, those are emerging viruses. Even vaccine-derived polio virus type 2 is emerging um, in the sense that, uh, you know, in, in the United States, um, in New York, for example, there's probably thousands of these cryptic cases of vaccine-derived poliovirus type 2 infections, um, but it's only one in a few hundred or so people that develop signs and symptoms of disease. Meanwhile, the rest of the population who's infected with those viruses, perhaps with either um, mild or no symptoms at all, could be shedding the virus into their feces. And then, you know, we can detect it through something that's been employed now quite a bit for SARS-CoV-2 surveillance, which is wastewater surveillance. Yeah, absolutely. That is a new weapon in the arsenal of public health to identify potential emerging pathogens by what's in the wastewater. Of course, that depends on the pathogen being shed at high enough levels in waste. <laughs> um so, but certainly that's been used globally for polio surveillance, in particular vaccine-derived poliovirus.es um, The polio um, vaccination, because this is oral polio vaccine, which is live attenuated and can undergo uh, phenotypic reversion. So, once this um, vac once the uh, uh, vaccine strain, if that gets 
persist, if that is able to persist in a population, it picks up new mutations that then allows it to again cause polio, which is uh, really uh, disconcerting. There's new vaccines now where um, very clever folks have um, basically used molecular biology techniques to make it such that it's more difficult for the virus based on the sequence to mutate known residues that result in phenotypic reversion. So these are these novel or new OPV2 vaccines, and they're working on it for the other um, the other serotypes, even though those are, are not currently circulating. Um, but that's a really interesting approach, although it'll probably take a few years before these um, uh, vaccine-derived polioviruses are eliminated. And certainly there's still a handful of countries where where um, um, uh, wild polio is still circulating. Um, Afghanistan and Pakistan, I believe, are the two remaining countries that still have not eradicated polio. I think Nigeria is considered eradicated at the moment. Um, yeah, so that was a sidetrack to poliovirus, which is just totally fascinating and something we really don't think about very much in the United States because it's been eliminated here for decades. And, you know, everyone everyone is is vaccinated with um, inactivated polio. So the oral, the live attenuated uh, polio is really um, imported. And then with waning immunity, people get infected and it, it continues to transmit. And that, my dear audience, is the end of part one of the Emerging Viruses episode with Dr. Benjamin Pinsky and Dr. Ryan Relich. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I enjoy sharing this information with you. So please stay tuned. Episode, the second part, will be airing next week. And if you're stopping by the Virology Symposium, and you, you know if you're attending this year, please go ahead and stop by if you see me. I'm always looking forward to meeting people, connecting, and learning. As always, continue bringing that passion to what you do. It's so important. We do such great work. So, as always, stay motivated, stay safe, and of course, continue talking micro. Until the next time. Bye.